0: From New York, this is Democracy Now.
1: I wish God will have mercy on us and the war stops. We suffered a lot. We cannot
0: bear what's happening to us. We cannot handle anymore. Even mountains wouldn't bear what
1: we're going through.
0: The death toll in Gaza has topped 8,300 as Israel intensifies its ground and aerial attack on the besieged territory. As fear grows, Israel will bomb the Okut's hospital in Gaza City. We'll get the latest. Then about 400 people were arrested Friday as they shut down Grand Central Station in New York, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The group Jewish Voice for Peace said it was the largest act of civil disobedience in New York City in 20 years. I am a
2: rabbi and I am demanding a ceasefire and a stop. It's the genocide that is occurring in my name as a Jew and as a rabbi. My grandparents were in
0: Then, as the United States joins with Israel in voting against a U.N. General Assembly resolution for a humanitarian truce, we'll look at Washington's support for Israel's bombardment of Gaza. We'll speak to Chicago Congressmember Delia Ramirez and Laura Friedman of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli tanks reached the outskirts of Gaza City after Israel carried out its most intense bombardment of the besieged Palestinian territory since October 7th. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Saturday a ground invasion had begun and warned of a long and difficult campaign ahead. Gaza's health ministry says Israeli attacks have killed more than 8,300 Palestinians, including nearly 3,500 children. Fears are growing of a possible strike on the Al-Quds hospital in Gaza City after Israel Sunday ordered its immediate evacuation. Airstrikes have repeatedly struck near the hospital, where an estimated 14,000 Palestinians are sheltering. On Sunday, Internet and cell phone access was restored to parts of the Gaza Strip after Israel blacked out all communications for Gaza's 2.3 million people. Most of Gaza remains without electricity. Tens of thousands, including pregnant people and babies, have been forced to drink brackish or contaminated water. The U.N. agency serving Palestinians says Gazans have reached their breaking point after more than three weeks of bombardments and total siege. Israeli strikes have killed at least 59 UNRWA employees, with many more believed to be trapped under the rubble. On Saturday, families of Israelis held hostage by Hamas met with Prime Minister Netanyahu, urging him to halt strikes that could jeopardize their loved ones. The families are calling on Israel to exchange thousands of Palestinian prisoners for the more than 200 Israelis believed to be in Hamas's custody in Gaza. Meanwhile, Netanyahu has apologized after he published, then deleted, a social media post blaming defense and intelligence officials for failing to warn him ahead of Hamas's deadly attack on October 7th. The Palestinian health ministry says the death toll from the Israeli attacks in the occupied West Bank has reached 111 since October 7th. At least seven of those were killed by Israeli settlers, including 40-year-old Bilal Mohammed Saleh, who was fatally shot Saturday near Nablus as he was harvesting olives with his family. On Friday, residents of the Janine refugee camp said Israeli army bulldozers destroyed a memorial for the Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, erected at the spot where she was fatally shot in the head by an Israeli sniper in May of 2022. The U.N. General Assembly voted 120 to 14 Friday in favor of a resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian truce and for aid access to Gaza. Israel and the U.S. voted against the resolution, which also calls for the release of captive civilians. Forty-five member states abstained, including Canada. Some countries, including South Africa, urged the United Nations to do much more to stop the bloodshed.
2: South Africa urges the United Nations to impose an arms embargo on all parties involved in this conflict, given the nature of the death and destruction. We are witnessing every day.
0: The resolution is non binding but holds political and symbolic weight. Over the weekend, hundreds of thousands of people joined Palestinian solidarity marches from London to Istanbul to Wellington, New Zealand. In the U.S., demonstrators in San Francisco blocked traffic on Highway 101 and held a vigil in front of Congressmember Nancy Pelosi's house. In Philadelphia, Jewish-American groups led an action in front of the office of Senator John Fetterman, a staunch defender of Israel. Here in New York, thousands of people led by Jewish Voice for Peace converged at Grand Central Station Friday night for the largest sit-in protest the city's seen in over two decades. Among the massive crowd were elected officials, rabbis, and academics. New York police arrested nearly 400 people. Before she was arrested, I spoke with Rosalind Pachesky, a professor of political science at Hunter College.
2: We believe in justice and the right to live for everyone, but Palestinians Been the victims of oppression for 75 years. And it has to stop. That's why we're here, to say, not in our name. I am older than the state of Israel.
0: After headlines, we'll air more voices from Friday's historic Grand Central protest. In Maine, authorities Friday discovered the body of the suspect in a mass shooting rampage at a bar and bowling alley that killed 18 people in Lewiston last week. Forty-year-old Robert Carr died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot. His body was found in a trailer at a recycling facility in the nearby town of Lisbon two days after the shooting. He'd reportedly recently been fired from the recycling center. A motive for the massacre is not known, though authorities say the shooter frequented the bar and bowling alley with his ex-girlfriend, Maine Maine police were alerted last month that the Army reservist was a possible danger after he threatened to shoot up his military base. Local officials and residents of Lewiston expressed relief as they now reckon with the tragedy's aftermath. Leroy Walker, a city counselor, is the father of one of the 18 victims, Joseph Walker.
3: Joe was the only one that would come up and hug me and say, I love you, Dad. I love you, Dad. And sometimes I'd say, I love you back. Sometimes I wouldn't say that. And uh, he'd say, I understand, Dad. <laughs> but I didn't understand. I, I should have said it a million times. Because cause it ain't going to happen no more. And I got my other boys out there. When I see them, I'm going to tell them I love them. I
0: miss them so much. The United Auto Workers reached a tentative deal with Stellantis on Saturday. It comes just three days after the UAW announced a tentative agreement with Ford, leaving GM as the only member of the big three automakers that's yet to make a deal with the union. This is UAW president, Sean Fain.
4: We called it the stand-up strike as a tribute to the sit-down strike, which built our great union almost 90 years ago. The sit-down strike showed the incredible power of regular working-class people to fight for economic justice and win big. After 44 days of occupying the GM plant in Flint, Michigan, the UAW announced victory. On day 44 of our stand-up strike, I am honored to announce that our union is again victorious.
0: The proposal includes reviving an Illinois assembly plant that had been shuttered since February and cost 1,200 UAW members their jobs. Some 5,000 jobs will be added to the Stellantis workforce, along with significant raises and end to tiered wages. In light of the success of the strike, the UAW said it's planning to organize workers at non-union automakers like Toyota, Honda and Tesla. In Iran, a 16-year-old girl has died weeks after she was reportedly assaulted by Iran's morality police for not wearing a headscarf. Ramita Garavand was hospitalized with brain injuries, fell into a coma after witnesses said she was beaten by officers in a Tehran subway station earlier this month. Amnesty International has called on the Iranian government to launch an independent investigation into her death, which comes about a year after 22-year-old Masamini died in custody of the so-called morality police. In Germany, 1,000 climate activists with the group Last Generation and Extinction Rebellion Netherlands blockaded a major road in Berlin Saturday. Some demonstrators glued themselves to the road surface. Dozens were arrested in their lightest act of peaceful civil disobedience as they demand the German government transition to a fossil fuel-free economy by 2030. As healthcare workers, we are already seeing the first consequences of people dying because it's too hot in the summer, that people with pre-existing conditions suffer more and more, that old people or especially vulnerable groups are the first to be affected in extreme weather. But even if we think that none of this affects us because we are young and healthy enough, when flood waves come, as they did suddenly and violently in the R-Valley or forest fires, as we have seen on the news several times, none of us is safe. The climate crisis affects us all, and the climate crisis kills. And the Bangladeshi climate scientist Salimul Haq has died in Dhaka at the age of 71. Saleem hawk served as a lead author on two of the definitive assessments of the Earth's climate published by the U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He was the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. In 2021, he appeared on Democracy Now! saying wealthy nations like the United States and Germany have a lot to learn about climate adaptation from poorer countries like Bangladesh.
4: The number of deaths that we saw in Germany, in one of the richest countries in the world, nearly 200 Germans actually died from flash floods, would never have happened in Bangladesh. We would have evacuated them. We do evacuate everybody that's in the path of floods or in cyclones. In Germany, they weren't able to do that. So Germany could learn a lot from Bangladesh, and so could the United States.
0: Salim Muhaq has died of a heart attack in Bangladesh at the age of 71. To see all of our interviews with him, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's intensifying its aerial bombardment and ground invasion of Gaza. Palestinian officials say the death toll has topped 8,300, including over 3,400 children. On Friday, Israeli ground troops backed by tanks and armored bulldozers entered Gaza amidst a communication blackout that cut off contact between Gaza and the rest of the world. Communications have now been partially restored. On Friday, the U.N. General Assembly overwhelmingly voted in support of a humanitarian truce, but Israel and the United States voted against the resolution. Massive demonstrations calling for a ceasefire. In Gaza continued this weekend, including right here in New York City. On Friday night, thousands of members of Jewish Voice for Peace, New York City, and their allies shut down the main terminal of Grand Central Station during rush hour. It's the largest sit protest the city's seen in over two decades. Many wore shirts that said, not in our name. And ceasefire now. Banners were unfurled reading Palestinians should be free. Israelis demand ceasefire now. One sign read never again for anyone the multiracial intergenerational movement, says about 400 people were arrested, including rabbis, famous actors, and elected officials from New York State Assembly and Senate and the City Council. Democracy Now! is there. Today, we bring you their voices, including Rosalind Pachesky professor of political science at Hunter College. <laughs>
2: maybe a thousand others, a lot of us Jews, but we are here to protest the genocide that is happening in our name. It has to stop. We are crying every minute. When we listen to your show, we are crying. I have a dear friend, Mohammed, with his little family in Gaza. have to recommit ourselves to justice. I believe that Judaism and Jewish ethics, this is how I grew up thinking,
3: ceasefire now and i'm calling on president biden and senator schumer and my assembly person nadler please please these are not jewish values it is not a jewish value to be dropping bombs on children killing children and their families
1: i am a state a week ago at a sit-in outside Senator Gillibrand's office, asking her to start calling for a ceasefire.
5: My name is Zohran Mandani. I'm an assembly member for parts of Astoria in Long Island City. And I'm here today to join thousands of Jewish New Yorkers, rabbis, and allies to say that the time is now for an immediate ceasefire. Are you willing to get arrested? I'm not going to be getting arrested today because I was arrested two weeks ago, and I was advised to not get arrested immediately after. What were you arrested for? I was arrested for civil disobedience for disorderly conduct i was arrested alongside assembly member marcella metanus in front of senator chuck schumer's home calling on him to support the demand for an immediate ceasefire what
6: does it mean to you that on this shabbos
0: this jewish sabbath thousands of jews are here at grand central saying ceasefire now
5: it shows that what we have been told about consent for this genocide is not true. So many of the Jewish New Yorkers here are struggling through heartbreak and mourning of October 7th, and they have made it very clear that do not use their heartbreak, their tragedy, as a justification for the genocide of Palestinians. In over two and a half weeks, we've already seen more than 7,000 Palestinians be killed, close to 3,000 Palestinian children, one Palestinian child killed every 15 minutes. These New Yorkers and so many across the state are saying the time is now for a ceasefire, and if you're not calling for it, you're supposed to be a genocide
6: uh, Sandy nurse I'm a council member to the 30 30-
5: of imperialism. So, I
6: They want to arrest me. I want to get arrested. They re- they're refusing. Yes, I Let's want to get arrested. All right, well, okay.
5: stand up. Okay.
6: Need I need help standing up. It's unbelievable. Put your hands behind your back. I need to be my cane. We'll get it. My name is Choice Rabbit. I I think that it's really important that there's a ma'am, ceasefire. Let go get one, one second. Please. Can you let go Thank of your you you. cane for a second? I let go of my cane. I'll be right back to you. I'll be right back. <laughs> that There's a ceasefire that people stop killing each other. We have to stop killing each other. We can't. We won't get rid of Hamas. We won't get rid of an idea. We might get rid of the organization. We might get rid of all of the people in Gaza. All of the Palestinians might be killed, but the idea won't die. Freedom won't die. Free, free Palestine!
0: Voices from the historic Jewish Voice for Peace protest on Friday that shut down Grand Central Station in New York City. Protesters were calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. About 400 people were arrested in what's believed to be the largest sit-in protest New York has seen in over two decades. Coming up, Democratic Congress member Delia Ramirez of Chicago— She's one of 18 members of the house who've signed a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire. Stay with us.
1: Yo yo. والله you out here in the west. I know I've been away but I'm coming back home no need to stress, baby. Hola no, holano, holano, to be Palestinian, to always read where you come from. Except when you're online at the customs told her she can meet me up in London. She let me cuz I came from Bazuela. From hazard love it would never go back. From love, baby, for lost thin as sincere Au binge blind ashbine Faudal comme Continue à parler on vous entend pas Continue à parler on vous entend pas let 's change out to from
0: Gaza with love by saint Levant this is democracy now democracynow.org, the war and peace report i 'm Mimi Goodman. Israeli tanks have reached the outskirts of Gaza city after Israel carried out its most intense bombardment of the besieged Palestinian territory since October seventh. Gaza's health ministry says Israeli attacks have killed more than 8,300 Palestinians, including nearly 3,500 children. According to Save the Children, that's more children that have been killed in armed conflicts globally over the course of a whole year. The U.N. Agency for Palestine Refugees, known as UNRWA, says desperate families broke into U.N. warehouses Sunday, removing wheat and other humanitarian aid. UNRWA says the incident showed people in Gaza have reached a breaking point. The U.N. agency serving Palestinians says Gazans have reached their breaking point after more than three weeks of bombardments and total siege. Israeli strikes have killed at least 59 UNRWA employees, with many more believed to be trapped under the rubble. On Friday, the U.N. General Assembly voted 120 to 14 in favor of a resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian truce and for aid access to Gaza. Israel and the U.S. voted against the resolution, which also calls for the release of captive civilians. Israel believes Hamas and other groups are holding over 220 hostages seized on October 7th during the Hamas attack that Israel says killed 1,400 people. We're joined now by two guests. Laura Friedman is with us. She's president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, a former Foreign Service officer who served in Jerusalem, Tunis, and Beirut. She's worked on Israel-Palestine and the broader region for over 30 years. We're also joined by Congressmember Delia Ramirez, who is a congressmember from Chicago. She's one of 18 members of the House of Representatives who've signed a resolution calling for an immediate de-escalation and ceasefire in Israel and Palestine. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Congressmember Ramirez, let's begin with you in Chicago. Can you explain why you supported this ceasefire resolution? Look, I want to see safety
7: and I want to see hostages released. There are 500 Americans and their families in Gaza right now. And I want to make sure that everyone is safe and that we are using our power to be able to de-escalate the situation. Bombing ourselves through it is not going to bring the hostages back safely. Bombing us through it is not going to bring 500 Americans back. I really believe, you just talked about it, 8,000 Palestinians have died. The only way we're going to get to long-lasting peace is a ceasefire. It's de-escalating
0: and using diplomacy. How did this resolution come about, Congressmember Ramirez?
7: Look, uh, we were already two weeks into this conflict. Uh, We have not seen any form of de-escalation, quite the contrary. And we have seen people starving to death. Um, in Palestine, in Gaza at this moment. And so for a number of us, we understand that if our outcome is peace in the region, that the only way we can get closer to that where hostages are released is the escalation and ceasefire. We have to make sure that we are doing everything we can to prevent a regional war. And the only way you get there is ensuring that the safety of innocent civilians is our absolute priority. You won't get that through bombing. We understood and a number of us co-led the resolution and more members of Congress in the coming days have also joined the resolution, recognizing that what we're currently doing now is escalating the situation, not de-escalating. And the only way we move forward is de-escalating, seizing fire. That's the way that you're going to be able to keep people from dying, protect innocent civilians. 1.2 million children right now in Gaza. The ceasefire is our only way of diplomacy and being able to get to a place of peace.
0: What kind of response are you getting in support of this resolution? In an earlier interview, you said if you ask what about the Palestinians, it's almost as if there's an assumption that you're saying you don't denounce Hamas. Uh, Can you talk about this and can you feel that that is changing?
7: I think it's slowly changing. And what I say to people is that I came to Congress to uplift shared humanity. I can denounce Hamas. I can call for the release of hostages. And I could also ask, what about the Palestinian children? Right now, we have children under rubble. The number that we're seeing is 8,000, but that is not the, the accurate, most accurate number. There are people that we have not found. There are families in Chicago and all over the world who have not been able to connect with their family in Gaza. And the reality is that if we care about Israelis, if we care about the Jewish community and, and their safety, we have to understand that it's interconnected with the safety and the freedom of
0: Palestinians. What kind of aid do you think should go to Gaza, and what about funding for Israel? Look,
7: Amy, when hundreds of thousands of people have lost their home, thousands of people have died, their communities have completely been destroyed. The question is, what will we do to ensure that people are able to come back to home when they have no home? When we're talking about substantial humanitarian aid, I don't mean 30, 40 trucks a day. I mean substantial billions of dollars of responsibility that we as the U.S., who has given military aid for such a long time, is responsible to give to help restore a place that has been, in many cases, in many parts of it, burned down to rubble. So we need to be able to do that. And I think secondary, for me to be able to say that I want more money for bombs, it begs the question bombs are going to kill people. And in this case, it is killing thousands of civilians. We've seen it already in the last three weeks. We have to do everything we can to ensure that we're honoring international law, that the money we're sending isn't killing children, that we are uplifting the humanity of people of Israel and people in Gaza, but Amy, people in the West Bank. Right now, settlers are killing people in the West Bank, and the Israeli government is enabling it. It is letting it happen. The aid that we send cannot be used to kill innocent lives. It's unacceptable. It's not moral, and I can't stand beside, I can't stand behind that.
0: I'm wondering what you think would be a more just U.S. foreign policy. I mean, you, Congressmember Ramirez, or Guatemalan American. We know the history of Guatemala and USAID for the successive military regimes that were responsible for the death of so many hundreds of thousands of Guatemalans in the 1980s and beyond. If you could comment on putting this in a larger context. Look, we have to ask ourselves, what is the outcome here?
7: Is it a two-state solution? Is it to be able to bring peace to the region, long-lasting peace? Because if that is the case, we as the U.S. have to think about the role we have played for the last few decades. We are not at peace. We have seen occupation all over the region. And we have to ask ourselves if what we want is long-lasting peace. Every single resolution, every single bill, and every single dollar that we send over, we must ask ourselves, will this get us to peace? Will this get us closer to a two-state solution? Will this create the kind of policy that will get us to a place where Palestinians and Israelis are safe and free? And if the answer is no then we need to reassess how we move and the kind of
0: policy that we have had in the region for the last decades. Have you spoken to President Biden or his inner circle? At the beginning, he was very clear in saying he told Netanyahu he did not say use restraint. But now the White House is putting out statements that they are, in fact, behind the scenes, saying that restraint must be used.
7: I've not talked to the president directly. I certainly have been talking to the State Department on a regular basis. And what I have said is words matter. What we are saying to the American people, what the American people are seeing has a direct impact even for us here. I mean, look, when you see Netanyahu and his own leadership, his own IDF leadership calling people less than human, animals, that has consequences. We have seen the impact and the growth increase of hate crime all over the world. Anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. A six-year-old boy, 30 minutes from my district, was stabbed 26 times because his landlord saw this six-year-old little boy as a threat to our society and nearly killed his mother. We have to understand that what we are saying to the people in this moment has real consequences. And we have a moral responsibility to lead from a place of diplomacy, seeking peace at all times and holding accountable the Israeli government for the ways that it is violating international law, for the ways that this ground incursion in this moment is killing innocent lives. We all want hostages out. We also want the 500 Americans and their families out. How we're moving in this moment is not making anyone more safe.
0: Congressman Bedelia Ramirez, we're also joined by Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, foreign foreign service officer who served in Jerusalem, Tunis, and Beirut, has worked on Israel-Palestine. Uh, and the broader region for over 30 years, former director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now, Americans for Shalom Ashtab. It's great to have you with us, Laura. Can you talk about what's happening in the Congress now? And if you feel movement to change in Biden's position from the beginning of the uh, after October 7th.
8: Sure. and, and, And thanks for having me. I, I do think that we're seeing, and, and the, the piece that you had before we came on here, um, we're seeing real movement in the grassroots. Um, there's really a surge in energy um, and a surge in support for Palestinian rights um, that we haven't, I, I think, has never been seen before. I think it still remains to be seen how that's going to be reflected in Congress if we just go by the statements that are being made by members of Congress, which except for a a small number, and Congresswoman Ramirez is among them, except for a small number, are um, at best very, very cautious about saying anything that would validate the humanity and the rights of the Palestinian people. The, The narrative on both sides of the aisle is mostly about the rights of Israel to defend itself. And that is um, defend, to defend itself is, is defined basically to mean Israel can do and should do whatever it wants to do. Um, and it bears no responsibility, has no agency with respect to the results when it comes to human casualties. Uh, Congress has, has bought completely the framing which says that any Palestinian that dies in Gaza from an Israeli bomb or we gets sick or starves or, or dehydrated, um, or ill, or dies in a hospital. That's all on Hamas. That is not Israel's fault. Everything is Hamas's fault, which which suggest, suggests a new ethos of war that that really opens the door for um, for everyone to to, to target civilians. Um, there's also the framing of, of human shields, um, which basically says, you know, it, it's we it's it's Hamas's fault that it's our, that we're, we're killing your civilians, that we're killing your children. Um, which I mean, there there is truth to the the argument that Hamas has um, placed itself behind human beings. It, it raises the question: if you know, if if bad guys invaded a a school, would the United States say, ah, for the sake of killing the bad guys, we need to bomb the school? We're going to kill all the children in the school because we have to, and it's the bad guys' fault. That is that is an, the inhumanity of it is is, is stunning. Um, but what we've seen really. Um, since the beginning of since October seventh, and I follow, I do report every Friday covering every single thing that happens in Congress related to the Middle East and Israel Palestine, is a deluge of, of of new legislation, of resolutions, and of letters, um, which by and large um, either ignore or diminish the humanity of Palestinians, which directly conflate. Um, criticism of what Israel is doing in Gaza or assertions that there is any context, that life, that there is history before October 7th, um, conflate it with anti Semitism, conflate it with support for Hamas and terror. And, and, and we've seen that with the attacks on the members of Congress, like Congressman Ramirez, who have dared to do something like call for a ceasefire um, with really um, despicable language used by members of Congress against their own colleagues. On both sides of the aisle, this is coming at them, um, suggesting that daring to talk about ceasefire is a uh, a betrayal of support for Israel and and is a form of anti-Semitism and support for terror.
0: Earlier this month, you tweeted, quote, reminder, six months before the Israeli election that made Kahanis arguably the most powerful political force in Israel, the Biden administration decided to do its part in normalizing Kahanism by removing Kahanis groups from U.S. list of foreign terrorist organizations where they've been listed for decades. For those who don't understand um, who Kahanis are, uh, explain the significance of this tweet.
8: Well, I mean, whole, whole books have been written about the Khanas. The Khanas, Rabbi Meyer Kahane was an American citizen rabbi from the New York area. Um, he wrote many, many books. His basic philosophy was, you know, all of the land of Israel, and that extends far beyond Israel's current borders, um, belongs to the Jews because it was given to the Jews by God. And, and he made clear that, I mean, you, you have to give him credit for honesty that, that this wasn't, that this is not a conflict that was going to be resolved that would in a way that, that would address everybody's rights or needs, that this was going to be a war and that the Arabs were going to have to lose, and this meant removing Arabs, and, and he, he was very, very clear. It's, it's, a, it's a worldview that is openly racist, openly Islamophobic, um, almost proudly so, and, and, and in effect suggests that people who think that there's some other solution um, are naïve. Um, that, that strand of thinking um, was was much, um, I would say, maligned and disrespected for, for a very long time. Um, the Kahanist party was outlawed in Israel as a racist party during Rabbi Kahane's lifetime. Um, he was eventually assassinated. Um, but what's happened since then is the mainstreaming of his worldview in Israel, and I would say in the United States amongst many supporters of Israel. A lot of the financing for his, his work and his thoughts comes from the United States still, and you know to the point where today um, you have very powerful people in the Israeli government, you have very powerful political strands in Israel, which are largely identical. Um, whose worldview is largely identical to that of the Kahanists. The fact that the Biden administration um, elected to remove um, the Kahanist parties from the terrorist list, and they were on the terrorist list because of acts of terror committed by acolytes of this movement against American citizens, um, you know, not in recent years, Um, but, you know, it, it, it was... I don't know why they chose that moment to remove them, but it certainly um, speaks to the mainstreaming and normalizing um, of, this, of this approach to the Palestinians.
0: Laura Friedman, can you talk about the hostage negotiations? Um, uh, You have Qatar and Egypt involved in those negotiations, mainly Qatar right now. Um, You have the hostage families who are a powerful force. We hear their stories repeatedly in the U.S. media, as we should. They should be a model for also uh, the coverage there should be of Palestinian suffering. But those families are calling for this exchange of the hostages. It's believed there's more than 200 120 or 30 of them um, that are being held by Hamas and other groups in Gaza and Palestinian political prisoners, Palestinian prisoners of which I think there are more than 6,600. I think they're calling it everybody for everybody. Can you talk about this?
8: Yeah. I mean, look, uh, the taking of the taking of hostages, the taking of civilian hostages by Hamas, I mean, the, the October seventh attack was was heinous um, in in every aspect. Um, the aspect of taking the hostages um, brought this home to Israelis in a way that is just. I, I don't think anyone um, who has not spent time in a, in a small country where everyone is you know is one degree of separation. This is this is incredibly real and incredibly personal um, for for everyone in Israel. Um, what is notable is in past. In past experiences where there have been hostages taken, um, Israel has sort of turned over every rock possible, done everything possible to get them back. You have negotiations, you have contacts, you have you have it, it's, it's, you, know, you think of Gilad Shalit. I mean, the entire country mobilizes to get the hostage back. Hostage, singular hostages, plural. In in this context, after October seventh, the the issue of hostages is raised constantly by the Israeli government as a reason for why it has to do what it's doing in Gaza, notwithstanding the fact that carpet bombing Gaza using, you know, deep, deep penetrating bombs and that are trying to get at the tunnels seems like a very likely way to, to kill your own hostages. Um, there has been a clear signal given, and if you listen to the, if you, if you look at the Israeli media, the contacts that the families of hostages have had with the Netanyahu government, it, it is hard to avoid the conclusion that there isn't actually a lot of desire on the part of the, of the Israeli government to get the hostages back. There have been numerous, and it's been, it's been public from, from other governments, from negotiators, there have been numerous offers by Hamas to exchange hostages, to, to release hostages in certain circumstances. There was you know, a, a brief ceasefire. and And so far, the argument seems to be, from the Israeli side, We won't do that because anything we do would be a victory for Hamas, and that is that we can't let that happen. So releasing the hostages is simply not a priority. But talking about the hostages and accusing anyone who talks about ceasefire as not caring about the hostages is a wonderful tactic. Um, all of us who are speaking out on this in social media, on media like this, are, are accused constantly of, well, you don't care about the hostages. The answer is no. I care very much about the hostages. I don't understand why the Israeli government doesn't care more about the hostages. I would suggest that the Israeli government's approach to the hostages um, makes clear that their objectives in this war are not about freeing the hostages. And that, I think, requires you know, further, further thought. Laura
0: Friedman, I want to thank you for being with us, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and Congressmember Delia Ramirez of Chicago for being with us as well. Next up is the death toll in Gaza, tops more than 8,000 as Israel intensifies its ground and aerial attack. We'll speak with a doctor in Cairo who's been trying for two weeks to get back into Gaza. Stay with us. From Here, by Akram Abdu'l-Fatah. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As Israel intensifies its ground invasion and aerial bombardment of Gaza, concerns growing Israel may soon bomb the Okudz Hospital, the second largest hospital in Gaza City. Israel's ordered the hospital to be evacuated, but doctors say they have no way to move critically ill patients. The World Health Organization Director General, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, said— Quote, we reiterate, it's impossible to evacuate hospitals full of patients without endangering their lives. This is Nabal Farsah of the Palestinian Red Crescent
5: have the means to evacuate Al-Quds hospital. We have over 400 patients who are inside the hospital. Many of them are in the intensive care unit. Evacuating them means killing them. That's why we refuse the evacuation order. We call on the international community to intervene immediately to stop a humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding.
0: On Sunday night, Democracy Now! reached Dr. fadl Naim ahead of orthopedic surgery at Al-Ahli Al-Arabi Hospital in Gaza.
8: The
1: Israelis warned all hospitals in Gaza, about 24 hospitals, to evacuate all patients and all these people in the hospitals, because we will look for safety and search for safety in the hospitals, because they think it's a safe place. Uh, We had here in Baptist Hospital about 3,000 people. They have about 12,000 people in Al-Quds Hospital, and they have also uh, 400 patients. And today, uh, they didn't bump directly to the hospital, but they bumped all around the hospital. So all the glasses, the doors were dis- uh, distor- uh, distorted and uh, it's not functioning now. It can't be functioning because, you know, all the
5: infrastructure uh, is, is, uh, uh, is distracted.
0: That's Dr. Fadel Naim, who works at Al Ahli Hospital. We're joined now by Dr. Mads Gilbert, Norwegian physician specializing in anesthesiology and emergency medicine. Dr. Gilbert's been working with the Palestinians since 1981, has been in Gaza there during the Israeli assaults in 2006, 2009, 2012, 2014, delivering life saving trauma care emergency medicine, mainly in the largest hospital in Al Shifa, but also in Al quds Dr. Begobert is currently with an emergency medical team supported by the Norwegian government in Cairo, Egypt, where they've waited for over two weeks to enter Gaza. Dr. Gilbert's also the author of several books on Gaza, including Eyes in Gaza and Night in Gaza. Dr. Mads Gilbert, welcome back to Democracy Now! Let's talk about this Israeli order that the— Um, that Al-Quds Hospital must be evacuated immediately, and the World Health Organization saying you are asking our doctors and staff to choose their own lives over their patients' lives who can't be moved. Can you respond to this?
4: Yes, I can, uh, Amy. And uh, I think, first of all, it is uh, completely absurd that we in 2023 should have a state army that is— threatening to bomb hospital and de facto is bombing hospitals and killing children by the thousands in what is called a war. Now, these threats to the Palestinian civilian hospitals in Gaza is extremely serious, not only because it is illegal according to international law, but it's threatening the lives of thousands of patients, of staff, and not to forget the 12,000 refugees who have taken refuge in Al-Quds hospital, and the more than 50,000 who have taken refugee in the uh, Shifa hospital. So these hospitals are not only clinical entities doing some treatment. These are cornerstones of the social fabric that remains in Gaza, because most of all other fabric is bombed away. I've talked to my colleagues both in Shifa and in Al-Quds this morning, and uh, my, f- my colleagues in Al-Quds, a hospital I know very well, they report continuous bombing very close to the hospital, and they can see fires. Also, during the night, there has been heavy bombardment of the Turkish hospital, which is a little bit further south, and which is the central cancer hospital of Gaza. For Shifa hospital there is also threats. And don't forget that before they bombed the Al-Akhli Arab Hospital, there were threats and what we call knock-on-the-roof bombardment around the hospital. So there is an urgent fear among my colleagues, doctors, nurses, paramedics, in these two large hospitals, that indeed the Israeli governmental army will execute the threats of bombing the hospitals. But they stay put And in that capacity, as health workers, to me, they are moral compasses and lighthouses of hope today in a very, very dark area of our history.
0: You have worked in uh, al-Shifa, the largest hospital in Gaza. Um, The Israeli military uh, says that that's where the Hamas command and control is.
4: Can you respond? I will ask... President Netanyahu to put on the table the proofs and the evidence that there is a control and command center for the Palestinian resistance in Shifa Hospital. We have heard these claims since 2009. We have twice been threatened to leave Shifa Hospital in 2009 and 2014 because, The Israelis were going to bomb it because it was a command center. Now, I have been working in Shifa for 16 years, 16 years, on and off, in very hectic periods, very hectic periods. I've been able to walk freely around. I take lots of pictures. I video film. I've been sleeping in the hospital during bombardment. I've been all over. I've never been restricted, controlled. Nobody has ever controlled my, my picture and documentation material. So, well, if there is a command center, show us. You have pictures and x-ray films of all Gaza, all the tunnels, everything. So why is it that these 16 years of threats that Shifa is a command center has not been given any evidence at all that it de facto is? Now, if it was a military command center, I would not work there because I obey to the Geneva Convention, number one. Number two, if the Israelis claim that this is a mixed military-civilian target because obviously it is civilian with tens of thousands of people gathering there and 2,000 patients being treated. If it is a mixed military-civilian target, the civilian... Precautions take priority over the military. So in accordance with the Geneva Convention, you can't bomb hospitals unless they have very clear military uh, uh, functions. So to me, this is all part of this immense intimidation of the Palestinian people in Gaza. They are threatened with leaflets from the planes and the helicopters. They are threatened by phone calls. They are threatened by, you know, if you stay in northern Gaza now, we define you as a terrorist. What is this? 2023, 2.5 million, 2.2 million people, civilian, unarmed people being killed. A child killed every 10 minutes. So far today, the number of killed Palestinian children is 3,324. And there are missing 2,062 Palestinian children in in Gaza. That's 5,300 Palestinian children killed in three weeks. And I ask President Biden, what kind of president are you? And the vice president, do you have children? Do you accept that this is a war? Do you accept that your supported Israeli army is killing by the thousands of children? For heaven's sake, let's have a ceasefire. Let's lift the siege of Gaza. Let's let in supplies and international teams to work. My colleagues are overburdened. They have worked night and day for three weeks now. This has to stop. I don't need to to use the word genocide. It's enough to say mass murder of civilians. It has to stop. There is no doctor. There is no medical effort.
0: Last question. We just have 20 seconds. Why are you trying so hard as Israel threatens to bomb hospitals to get into Gaza and work in a hospital?
4: To show concrete solidarity with the Palestinian people. That is our strongest tool now. All over the world, we need to stand up and say we don't accept this. We need to show solidarity. My solidarity as a medical doctor is to go to Gaza, stand shoulder to shoulder, do the work together with my colleagues and try to be a decent human person.
0: Dr. Mads Gilbert, we're going to try to do a part two interview with you and post it at democracynow.org. Dr. Mads Gilbert, a Norwegian physician who's been working with the Palestinians for the last 20 years. I am Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.